Human culture thrives when discussions about what is true, what is just, and what is beautiful is remembered as an ongoing, never-ending, never-complete conversation. To quote Milton, by the known rules of ancient liberty, welcome to Risky Conversations. I am your co-host, Ace Deliri. Join us as we engage in this ancient tradition of discussions around interesting topics with utterly fascinating people. Jaffer, thank you for joining us on Risky Conversations. Uh, you are here live with me and uh, Ember. Please give us your intro and uh, we'll get started from there. Uh, thank, you for thank you for having me on. Um, I am a serial entrepreneur uh, based in the south suburbs of Chicago. Um, I've been in several different industries and uh, um, am a, a follower of uh, the real world risk institute philosophy, I believe that's what it would be. But um, uh, currently, um, I am the CEO of Pulse TV, which is an online e-commerce company. And before that, uh, we were doing infomercials on television, and we market on uh, online, for, you know, since uh, 1998. So we've been doing this for quite some time. Right on. So, so what exactly is it that that you guys sell? Is it just a a, a wide uh, selection of things, or specific things that you target? Um, there are a lot of as seen on TV products. Okay. Um, we kind of ad adapted a direct to consumer model from. Uh, infomercials to online and okay. so uh, that's you know so we believe in a push rather than a pull kind of marketing philosophy so okay. we try to create we try to create demand rather than just satisfy demand that somebody is searching for I see and, and in a world with uh, Google search and Facebook ads and Amazon competition how do you make sure that you don't get drowned out by all those guys doing the exact same uh, thing that you're trying to do? Well, uh, that, that's a good question. Um, their, their approach is fundamentally different. If uh, Amazon, Walmart, Google, they exist to satisfy your demand. So their sale begins when you try to search for something. So if you want to buy something, you're going to go to Amazon and 55% of all product searches begin on Amazon. It's already in your mind. Um, what we do is, uh, so what they are doing is satisfying demand. What we do is create demand by pushing um, offers to people in various ways, via uh, people subscribing to receiving offers via text, mm -hmm. uh, via email, uh, something called web push notifications. Mm -hmm. And so um, we're we're intervening into their you know processes, and mm. they didn't know they wanted a you know an eleven dollar flashlight until we put the offer in front of them, really just like a TV commercial in essence. Right, right. So, so my question in that front is, so how do you get to their? How do you get them to opt into your push strategy without, uh, for lack of a better term, uh, annoying them in the process? How do you how do you get them on board? with you sending them offers without them blocking your number or blocking your email into the junk mail folder? Um, well, again, that's another good question. Um, we, um, in 2007, we were the first deal of the day company okay. uh, that we preceded a Groupon. And we had uh, 
um, newsletter subscribers, people were going to our websites and subscribing to getting offers. But mm. we didn't really start growing until we cut partnership deals with a lot of the infomercial companies. So mm -hmm. let's say Snuggies or uh, Total Gym or um, Copper Pants. Those mm. people, they're marketing on TV, but they don't have a lot of products. Right. So what we did was we partnered with them and saying, look, what are you doing in between coming up with new products? Right. They said, well, we don't do anything. So they said, well, give me your buyers, the people that have bought from you, mm -hmm. and we will deploy a deal of the day, a white label version, and uh, we'll pay you a royalty off the gross, not off the net, off the gross sales. So they get a royalty and they, they extend how much money they're making because they don't have enough products to sell. And so we grew from sending out 35,000 people a day to approximately 4 million every day receiving our emails. Mm. And then people, then we get people to subscribe to receiving offers via text, you know, on their phones. Right. And uh, web push notifications. Those are those, you ever go to a website and, and a, a pop-up says, you know, would you allow us to send, you know, to send you or to notify you of new offers, allow right. or block. Right. And we have 58,000 people who have allowed us to push an offer every day. And it's not mm -hmm. on our website is when they log into the computer, it uh -huh. pops up on their screen. So it, it, they don't even have to be on our website for them to see the offer. Just I like see. they don't have to be, um, you know, on our website to get our email or mm. our text. So, so from what I gather here, you're you're essentially uh, helping bridge the customers that want these products with the companies that sell them. My question to you on that front is, how good are the margins in a business like that? Well, um, because we give them we give them on average about fifteen percent of the gross. But we buy approximately 75% off of retail. Okay. All right. Um, understand, we're selling a lot of an individual product. So right. Amazon might have 750 million SKUs or items that they sell on their website. So they don't sell a lot of individual items if you average it over 750 million. Mm -hmm. We, you know, we sell one every day. Okay, and so you know, we have a limited number of items that we sell, so we buy a lot of quantity of of these products. I see, I see. So, so when when it comes to a, a business of that sort, um, because what, from my understanding of it, and correct me uh, for my ignorance, I was always under the impression that most of these businesses that are um, selling products that are on TV are very low in terms of the margins they start with us, uh, in, in the beginning. And yet, I see them proliferating all the time. And I, I guess if somebody like yourself comes in, along, you're able to find a pathway to, to get them to uh, reduce their cost of uh, customer acquisition, and then bring back uh, some of that uh, those savings as a, as a as a profit for them. Is that is that the better, is that why they're partnering with you? Because from what I would see it is why wouldn't they just say, look, uh, I see what you're trying to do. We could do it ourselves, or well, is it they just rely on your expertise? Well, well, one of the problems that they're not geared to. Uh, um, having hundreds of items to sell to consumers. 
Right. So that's one. Second of all, they don't even do their own fulfillment. Mm. We do. Okay. Third is that um, they do. You made one small error, uh, Ace, mm. in that their margins are generally about 80 to 90 percent. So really? if they're selling something for twenty dollars, they're buying it for between one and two dollars. You know, so oh, wow. yeah. Um, now, mm. what they have done is, an, um, they will sell to Walmart and Target and Bed Bath and Beyond and Kohl's, but they get those returned at the end of a product life cycle. And so they'll get 30 to 40%. So that, let's say they'll send, sell 5 million to Walmart. Well, Walmart might return 1.5 million units. I see, because they couldn't and, push them on the shelves. Right. And so we'll go to our, there are our partners, we'll go and we'll buy their closeouts on pennies on the dollar. And, mm. and, then, and therefore we can, you know, um, a copper pan set might be 79.99 on an infomercial, and we're selling it for $49.99. So we're saving money. But the, you know, the list, the companies, they get a royalty off the gross. So they, they make money if we sell flashlights, sell their product, or sell anybody's product. I but see. they really, their model, they're not geared to do what we do. Um, you know, it, it's it's not a great business model to to be able to do what everybody else does. And and I believe that one of the reasons why so few e-commerce companies make money mm. is that they are emulating or trying to emulate Amazon mm. and they're waiting for people to search for their products. Right. Okay. And uh, I think that that is essentially um, um, a, real, a real problem um, and I have said that we kind of, as a nation, we've uh, forgot how to sell. Right. Okay. Um, right. If you're just satisfying somebody's demand, you're just waiting. You're not creating that demand. You know, you're uh, just waiting for them to to have it in their mind that oh, I want uh, you know um, compression socks. Okay. Right. Well, right. and and if. If I'm going to compete with that, then you, you go to Amazon and type in compression socks and you're going to have 1,500 people selling the same thing. Mm, mm, I see. Right, right. So if you go in that direction, you're, you're, you're crowded out. Whereas if you go and you actively create the demand yourself, you can capitalize and, 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 and basically capture almost all of it for yourself. Well, I mean, you know, the, the real key, the real key to what we do, and I have made no um, secret about this, is that um, marketers have to own their own media. Okay. And to own your own media, to understand that data is actually 21st century media. Mm. Data is like uh, is, is like uh, potential energy. Okay. And a boulder on, on the top of a mountain is sitting there with potential energy that needs to be pushed and then becomes kinetic energy. Well, there's, there's something like potential media. If you have somebody's email and address and, and it's waiting there, waiting for action, it's potential media. And then once you actually deploy it with an offer, it becomes kinetic media, if you will. I see. Um, 
and 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 so my advice to budding marketers mm. um, is to understand the relationship of owning your own media and marketing your own products. Mm. Okay, because we have marginal cost of deploying media is practically zero. Right. So, um, Ace, how much is it going to cost um, to have you have 1,000 people listen to this podcast versus 1,001 people? That marginal cost is practically zero, if not zero. It, it is zero, but yeah, I, right. I see what your point right? is. And, and, and so to understand, mm. to understand uh, that to, to be a marketer in the 21st century to succeed, mm. one has to understand the relationship of the zero marginal cost of media mm. and being able to market within that, um, within that marginal cost structure. That's where you can make money. Right, right, right. So, so my question to you is a, a few fold on that front. One of which is, what's your conversion rate of the number of people you actually have this potential energy for, versus what you've converted kinetically into sales? Like, is is a margin, is a ratio on that front uh, half decent? Is it like, you know, it's like, is it shooting fish in a barrel, or is it like, um, uh, you know, uh, trying to capture a, a fly with your hands? What, what's the what's the what's the process like once you've got all these potential customers waiting for you? Well, um, it, it's not as it's not as high as mm. if people are raising their hand already asking for you. Remember, we're getting these the this media from a multi multitude of sources. So right. the um, those people that sign up to get web notification mm. every day is high. Those right. people that sign up to get their offers on their phone three times a week is very very high. Those people that are on email, it's lower, but your marginal costs are low. We, right. But we, we've had over 2 million um, customers mm. for Pulse TV, and, and we, we've had about 20, over 25 million people come through our system. So oh, it's wow. a lower conversion rate overall. Right. But, you're, you know, your cost structure. Mm. And, and it's really, um, it, it's really the, the situation of if you crush down your cost of failure, mm. then you can succeed. Because you're convex. That is, well, that is correct. Because, mm. you know, you know the, the conversions are convex, you know. Mm. And so if you can clip your left tail of risk, which means mm. that you really are, are, are uh, keeping from being concave, right? On, right. Then that is the recipe. People mm. and I and I find entrepreneurs. We're and and this was my big big problem as a as a budding entrepreneur. We all understand convex returns. Right. As an entrepreneur, you get that. Okay, but uh, avoiding ruin. Is much more important, okay, so that you can keep your uh, hook in the water mm. to catch the fish. And yes. I didn't really become really successful until I could clip that left tail and avoid ruin. Now I've had tremendous convex businesses that made a lot of money, and then it was kind of like a, a gambler putting all the money in and losing the hand afterwards. Mm -hmm. I see. I see. 
Thanks, Jafar. Um, how would you define anti-fragility? Um, I, I, I define it as um, two, um, two qualities. One is that you have to avoid ruin. So you're clipping your left tail. And on the other hand, on the other side, you have convex returns. Okay, so you can't have anti-fragility without clipping your left tail. Okay, um, and I think that this is one of the biggest um, mistakes that I have encountered with the uh, Real World Risk Institute, people not quite getting that particular idea that convex returns are essential, mm. but just as essential as avoiding ruin. And you need both of those conditions in order to have uh, anti-fragility and then there's, I guess, a third condition, and that is that it's time dependent. Mm -hmm. um, so you're, you can be anti-fragile for a time, right? All right, mm -hmm. um, and it's not, and it's not uh, forever. We're going to die. Um, right. A, a forest fire is going to run out of trees. Right. So there is a, there is a boundary. Uh, of time and a lot of times uh, some other other points. So um, I always I always use anti-fragility and use up to a point. Right. Maybe that's, that's a practical issue. Mm. And uh, I, I think it deserves, um, you know, uh, just a, a lot more um, emphasis from you know what we call the tribe right right so 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 if i can if i can rephrase it to see if i understood your point correctly is that i could be anti-fragile in the current moment uh dependent on the e uh, ecosystem around me that's dynamic but that doesn't necessarily guarantee that my strategy of maintaining anti-fragility today will be valid tomorrow because for example uh, if, you know, I just uh, a world-changing event takes place, and all the things that previously did enable you to stay anti-fragile allowed you to survive, while some of your competitors may have been ruined and wiped off. But now a new env environment shows up, a new dynamic shows up, and now you still have to change and adapt to that in order to maintain your competitive advantage via anti-fragility. Would that be an accurate summation of what you just stated? And that is really well well articulated. And to give you a an exact example is mm. that um, Pulse TV, we were adding 400,000 new buyers into our data stream, into our deal of the day mm. um, for several years. And we were getting those, as I said, from the infomercial industry. So we were derivative of how well the infomercial industry was doing. Well, the infomercial industry started a precipitous decline approximately six, nine months ago. Mm. And instead of 400,000 a month coming into our system, which gives us, in essence, free customer acquisition, we're, we're acquiring customers at a profit, not at mm. a cost. Right. Um, but we went from 400,000 to 75,000. That's over 80% reduction in mm. monthly let's call it media. Right. Okay. And so um, 
we, you know, it is forcing us to find new methods mm. of acquiring customers at a pro break even, break even or a profit. So we need new media sources, mm. and that's what we're doing right now. I see. So, so in this in this context of what you just stated, uh, so I imagine um, you and I had these conversations before about the cost of uh, long term value, which we both know is is sort of a a sham uh, sort of metric. And and for for listeners who don't understand what that means, what that means is typically you show up to like I'll give you an example of a coffee shop where they may put out an ad. Um, you know, the local area in the in the newspaper or whatever for that particular region, and the ad will cost seven hundred dollars. And the newspaper people who are selling that ad may say to them, "Hey, listen, if you put out seven hundred dollars worth of an ad in this local paper, that we will track customers to your to your store. Over, if you acquire four customers and they become your customers for life, and they buy a cup of coffee a day for the number of days they're going to be drinking the coffee, your cost of acquisition is essentially zero. But you and I both know that that's a fool's errand because that metric has no real value to it because it's an assumption of the future reflecting the present. Was that, was that an accurate area of where you and I had our initial agreement? That is true. It, um, another way of looking at it is that you place a mortgage mm. on the customer mm. when you go negative to acquire him because right. it takes a long time in order to make enough profit to cover that acquisition cost. Right. And so what has happened in the online actually in in pretty much in uh, you know uh, in in the United States across all businesses mm. they're using more and more lifetime value to justify uh, mm. the increased cost of customer acquisition mm. and the danger and the fred the fragility of that mindset is mm. that the future doesn't resemble the past, as we know. Right. And all lifetime calculations are looking in the rearview mirror to develop what the metrics are and what you can um, afford to acquire a customer. Right. I, let me give you a good example, at least um, one that might reverberate with your listeners, mm. is that um, um, the iPhone came out in June of 2007, mm. prior to the iPhone, BlackBerry was, you know, I, you know, I don't know if you even remember BlackBerry. But, <laughs> okay, but um, they were the number one um, you know, phone. Right. And they would spend uh, $2,500 to get a customer. Well, really? right. And because they had a good lifetime value model. Well, then comes Apple with iPhone, and it destroyed the lifetime value metrics because <laughs> that, that point forward, the future, uh, you know, it, it it ceased looking like BlackBerry's past and almost put them out of business. Right, right, right. I remember because what I did was um, uh, this, this comes down to an agency model problem, right? So the person selling you the ads is selling you a potential future that resembles the past, whereas you know that the future and the past are not going to necessarily coincide. And that's where you and I have the moral ethical um, complaint against it, which is to say, look, unless you can guarantee me that the future is going to resemble this and that for the next foreseeable, let's say, three years, the cost of acquiring this customer is going to be uh, exactly as it is today, I don't think this is a viable solution. So. 
I took your your point of view was, and I actually flipped the script a little bit because when I help customers uh, that I help with uh, when it comes to writing, um, you know, redoing their websites and adding some functionality to it, I take the exact same model, but I narrow the scope of time down to uh, three months. I say, okay, look, you know, long lifetime value is a metric that is used as a sleight of hand to uh, get you to fork money over. I'm going to try it a different way. I'm going to give you the lifetime value metric, but I'm going to bound it with three months. This way you can test it to see if it's actually working or not. And so your upfront costs are bounded. It's a lot lower for you to get in to test the water to see if the strategies that I'm recommending for you actually make sense for your business. And that's actually all in, in due course because I was um, reading your blog post about the whole uh, concept of it. And I realized that the idea is not false. The idea is false if you unbound the time and say, oh, it's, it's perpetual. Well, well, it's not just um, uh, uh, it's not just the cost mm. being guaranteed. It's actually the revenue. So the mm. lifetime value is an estimation or an approximation, okay, of how much profit one is going to get from a, a new customer that is acquired. Okay? Right. And so um, your cost structures can go up and down or whatever, but it is what. Mm. Um, when a marketer is using a lifetime value metric mm. is he is saying how much of a mortgage can i place upon getting a new customer right and that is that that is based upon a projected amount of profit he's going to get in the future From and that. that's and that is where there's a tenuous um relationship and so what I recommend to marketers mm. is that you, the further, and, and by the way, this um, is what Joe Norman would absolutely agree with, the farther you look into the future of a, mm. in a complex environment, the more mm. tenuous your predictive abilities are. So right. uh, the weather, I can give you a pretty good estimation of what the weather is going to be like in five minutes from now okay? right um, but um five weeks from now five months from now five mm. years from now it becomes it becomes ridiculous and right. so as a marketer you have to understand that you live in a you are operating in a very complex environment and so it behooves you to have a shorter runway in mm. whatever forecasting you want to do mm. and so i say work on a break-even analysis right You're still projecting mm -hmm. okay mm -hmm. um but it but the runway is closer to your feet here it's okay. closer to to that time and um where i didn't have to do that with pulse tv at all because we were acquiring customers at a profit mm. okay Mm -hmm. So that, you know, I didn't have to use lifetime value, but, mm. um, and if you really look, the, the people that are pushing the use of lifetime value as a metric mm. are Google. Right. Okay. Because they want you to be able to spend more for media to acquire a customer. Right. Um, and, uh, and then the agencies want you to spend more money to acquire a customer because then they have a longer runway themselves. Right. And then you have the trades. 
mm. are promoting a lifetime value model mm. because they're subsidized by the Googles and the, and, and the, the BS vendors. <laughs> and then you have the financial industry, which is, you know, and companies like Amazon, you know, they, they don't want to expense um, customer acquisition. They want to amortize it. Mm, mm. They want to spread it out. So right. that like, literally um, their, their financials are going to look better, you know? And so you have a whole ecosystem mm. that is based upon a fraud. <laughs> but it can be maintained for a long period of time. It can be maintained for a very long time, especially when you have venture capitalists mm. and private equity. Mm pumping this okay pumping this whole notion mm. because you know this then feeds into growth at any cost so right. um for us uh, you know who um every penny that we spend comes out of our pocket you know um we we uh, look at things with a much more jaundiced eye right 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 I understand what you're saying. So what's the alternative to lifetime value? Um, well, we use a break-even analysis or better. So what I want to find out is how long, you know, when I acquire a customer, how long does it take for me to break even on it? Mm -hmm. Okay. And so is it going to be on the first order? That's That's... You know, uh, you know, Nirvana. Okay, <laughs> um, is it going to be in three months, six months, nine months, one year, two year, three year? The further you go out into mm. the future, the more tenuous that business is likely to be. Mm. Okay. See, uh, it's funny because that ties into uh, one of the conversations I had yesterday, where I uh, the, the tweet I, I sent out was about this concept that. Time burns all assumptions, and so you want to have the minimal amount of assumptions you can get away with, just so that when it does come down time to burn it, you're not standing in the way of the flame, right? Well, I mean, yes, that's a, a beautiful another way of of saying that our predictive abilities, mm -hmm. okay, are overwhelmingly flawed, and so um, look, we all have to forecast. Right. We just don't believe them. <laughs> okay. You know, so, you know, you can um, project or forecast in war. Mm. Okay. And Eisenhower said, yeah, as soon as the, the first shot is fired, it's, it's useless. Right. Um, and, but, you know, you want to be able to think about the future, mm. but you want to actually spend more time you know, ripping away at those assumptions mm. and, and understanding that we really don't know very much about the future. So epistemic humility mm. is absolutely the most important or one of the most important qualities of running your business. Mm. And to know that you, you are, uh, you know, 
we're so flawed, not just mm. with our own characters, but our 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 ability to to see forward. Right. No, I understand. I understand what you're saying in that regard because um, uh, what makes this process uh, fascinating is is this. So let's say you're 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 a company right now that's in the business of acquiring new customers, and 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 that 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 has two different approaches to it because if you're selling something that's real and tangible. Um, your margins are going to be tighter. Your your supply chain management has to be a lot better. Your customer service has to be through the roof. Your return process, repairs, i.e., I'm really talking about Tesla in this regard, right? So what what ends up happening here is that they sell the great tail, and they push out the car, and then people buy it. And unfortunately, some of some of them have reported experiences where a repair is delayed for six months because the extra parts weren't available for that person to go in and um, you know uh, get their car fixed. So that leaves a bitter taste in, in, in the customer's mouth. Uh, it, it drags down the value perception of Tesla itself. Uh, and, and this is one of those things where the mindset, and I, and, and I think you might agree with me on this, uh, but I don't want to put words in your mouth, is that Elon comes from the uh, software acquisition strategy, which is that software is very easy to fix and uh, easy to send patches up the chain once you've shipped something out. Whereas hardware is almost impossible to do so because once you've sent something out there, you better have uh, tested it uh, uh, through and through, and you better have spare parts ready to go just in case repairs need to be made. So in this regard, I think what's happening here, and I think what you're really um, honing in on, is that for the longest period of time, business was done without software, in the sense that you actually had real products, you had real margins, you had real costs, you had real acquisition strategies, you had all the face-to-face uh, the, -face interactions with customers, and that was great, and that's what we we're all used to, and then the software world came into play, especially online, where everything was essentially, here's version one, here's version two, and it just kept iterating. And if, if your version was broken, you just uh, you know use the newest version, everything was fixed. And so therefore, this delusion sort of seeped into uh, uh, the mass uh, consciousness, so to speak. And, and their belief was that you can always just keep getting better as long as you keep pushing faster and faster forward. Meanwhile, it's actually done quite the reverse to it because what's actually happened here is it's driven costs so low that it's allowed a lot of agency uh, third-party leeches to step into the game and say, hey, we will sell those ads for you. We will acquire those customers for you. But the business model is no longer what it used to be where if you're a merchant trader in, in, in Saudi Arabia you know, uh, in the 7th century BC and you had you know, the, um, uh, the Silk Road as your, as your venue, it was pretty much guaranteed that the business you had uh, yesterday was going to be essentially the same kind of business you may have tomorrow. But today the dynamic has changed and your anti-fragility concept of bounding things in time and space really speaks to that. Right. And, and it's an interesting, interesting point that you make about uh, the future looked pretty much like the past, mm -hmm. you know, in the 7th century, for example. And uh, the, the gentleman who really articulated this, I think, best was Buckminster Fuller. And he was he spoke about something called the knowledge doubling curve. OK. And, and so he said approximately, uh, you know, a thousand years ago, it took a thousand years. I mean, two thousand years ago, rather. It took a thousand years to double knowledge. Right. OK. Um, and then in the, by by the 1900s. Okay, it was it took a hundred years to double. By 1950, it took 50 years to double. By by the year 2000, it took 10 years to double. 
And so now at 2019, what is that knowledge doubling curve? And, and the reason this is important is that, you know, we have data, then information, then knowledge, then wisdom, okay? So mm -hmm. in some ways, um, change is a function of data and information and knowledge doubling. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, wisdom doesn't, uh, it doesn't double <laughs> like, uh, like, like data. I mean, now there's more data collected every three days. It's doubling every three days. So this, you know, so the pace of change is so fast where, you know, 1500 years ago, it was slower. And then even in 1950, a lot of the marketing concepts, mm. you know, where you are assuming the future looks like the past. Well, um, you know, if the ecosystem is not iterating and it's not changing very fast, mm. then you can get away with it. Right. But with today's information and, you know, I believe that change is a function mm. of this data, information and knowledge. Okay, mm. and so therefore you, you become much more um, susceptible mm. to uh, you know the 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 complex you know the the cascading effect of that change. Right, does, right, right. Does that make sense to what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, no, it, it totally makes sense in the, in the following sense because I, I look at it this way, right? So uh, I'm a big fan of um, Buckminster Fuller myself and. One of my favorite quotes from him was that I just invent and then I wait till men who need what I need, who, who, who want what I need, come looking for it. Right. So in this regard, what you're doing here is you're saying, look, the surface layer of what people see uh, is one thing. The tides that actually generate the change underneath it are nonlinear. And that's what we that's what our quote unquote tribe really focuses on. So since we, you know, dive deep once in a while and take a look at the undercurrents. We know what's going to happen on the surface layer, but the vast majority of humanity and their linear way of thinking is basically happily sailing and they don't see the, 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 the tsunami sort of coming their way. Whereas you are advocating the process of saying, look, what you see on the surface layer is great, but make sure you consistently keep diving deep to make sure that you can see the changes uh, uh, that are coming that are going to disrupt this process so that you can get out of the water when that tsunami starts to come your way. Correct. And, and so... Um what we do mm. is constantly increase our optionality okay mm -hmm. because we don't know where the future is actually going to be but what we want to do is um be more like barry sanders where okay you have flexibility and optionality you're you're going to go off a right tackle but you may end up over left end okay mm. um mm. and and so you know, uh, one one interesting definition of value is increased options. Mm. And if you can get, you know, so all, what I do for a living, actually, personally, is I dream of creating new hypotheses for when I'm wrong. <laughs> okay, <laughs> all right. And so, so trying to come up with more options. For, for me because, you know, the one thing I, I, I believe is that I, I'm going to be wrong looking forward. So I want to have a lot more options for when I'm wrong. It's not even if I'm wrong, when I'm wrong.
I see. And, and, and by the way, it, it's kind of a uh, uh, unsettling at, at one point. You have to get really comfortable with uncertainty. And right. and the, um, the, the the one of the fantastic things about the tribe is that mm -hmm. we're really always talking about uncertainty, but not. I think too often we talk about it as a intellectual concept, mm. whereas, you know, I'm feeling it every single day as an entrepreneur and I just have a better vocabulary and I want to, you know, give my props to Nassim mm. because he, he has given me a language to communicate this. So we're talking about the very things that almost every entrepreneur knows you know, intimately, but cannot express. Right. Right, right, right. So how would you reconcile risk, uh, ruin, and uncertainty in relation to optionality? To reconcile it? I'm not sure I understand the question. Um, the um, adding options, uh, optionality, is giving you a way of dealing with um, whatever happens in the future. I mean, there's, I don't know if you like uh, uh, blues music, but it was an old Chicago blues song. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was, whatever way the wind blows, it's cool to me. <laughs> okay. And, and so that is kind of my philosophy. If I can construct our tactics and strategies mm. to follow that, well, Okay, the infomercial industry is is now in a one-way ticket to oblivion, and eighty percent of our our uh, you know new buyers are gone. Well, how can I make that cool to me? Well, then I need other options. I need other options to create media and to create new data points. Mm. Okay. Um, now, avoiding ruin means that I'm not going to take risks that can lead to ruin. So it's the uh, the business version of the precautionary principle, okay? right? You know, or at least crushed down to a specific point. Mm. And I, I'll tell you that that it was my number one problem because I'm actually a risk junkie. Mm. Okay, and. Uh, you know, I would be the guy, I, I, I don't play poker any longer, but when I was younger, I did. And mm. I'd be the guy to go all in way too often. <laughs> <laughs> Is it the thrill of the chase for you? <laughs> well, you know, I mean, it, 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 there's, I don't know what it is, but there's an excitement, adrenaline, there's, you know, and when it comes to business, um, you know, I, I, I have this faith mm. that everything is going to be okay if I can, you know, just have time, any time, okay? Um, and, uh, you know, I, I remember, uh, you know, I, I learned meditation. I mm. went to Fairfield, Iowa. Mm. And uh, Maharishi International University is... Uh, uh, is in Iowa. 
Mm. And it was a, a four-day course. And I knew the instructor who was actually uh, taught by Maharishi. And mm. he was a client of, of mine when I owned a, um, a fulfillment company. Mm. And after, you know, he taught me and, and, and everything. And he said, you know, I just want to tell you. He said, you have more faith as a businessman than any person that I ever met. And I never thought of it like that. Right. Um, right. I, you know, uh, but that doesn't bode well for clipping your left tail risk. <laughs> Just, right. You know, right. That, that left tail risk is, is really a very rational, you know, saying, okay, um, you know, how much can I afford to lose? That's right. not a it's not based upon faith. It is how many chips will am I willing to put into, the, you know, into the pot? Right. And I think that is what I've learned over the years. You know, what's interesting about that is that um, uh, I've been involved in multiple uh, businesses and, and helped out uh, various people with their uh, particular problems. And, and, and here's, I think, where you and I have commonalities as follows. See, we like taking risk, but we also know that uh, the risk is what teaches you the best way to assess future opportunities for more risk. Whereas most people, when you put your business idea to them, if the, if they don't hear like this is the foolproof guaranteed plan to make you money, they're not really interested because they don't really know that the world doesn't work like that. And for you and me, our approach is like, look, we're going to get into this business, but we can only get into it with this amount of funds or this much time because that's what we're willing to lose. And then hopefully on the upside, if the gain comes, we are better off for it. So we can place multiple bets, whereas most people just want to put all, quote unquote, their eggs in one basket. Correct. Correct. And so you have to have convexity mm -hmm. so that if, you know, um, you know, you, let's say you've eliminated risk mm. or not eliminated, lowered it to a tolerable right. level. level. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And um, but if your upside is mm. not real good, you know, then you know, it's not an assessment of future risk. It's really more about the lines of if I, if I have convexity, mm -hmm. if my idea succeeds. Right. Okay. Right. Uh, and, 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 if, and if I if I crush down the cost of failure. Mm. So when I was doing infomercials, mm. um, it was costing anywhere between one hundred and fifty to two hundred thousand dollars to get a failure. Okay. And and uh, and then if you get a, a winner, like we had Riverdance, okay, which was a big hit, okay, mm. well, you make millions. Right. But, so it had, but the cost of failure, we had 25 failures in a row. Right. Okay. So yeah. quite Sorry. literally, we ate up all of the profits that we, <laughs> we did with Riverdance. Mm-hmm. And we gave it back because I didn't clip the left tail risk. And, mm -hmm. and what I said is when we, when we started marketing online, I said, that's not going to happen anymore. We're going right. to crush down the cost of failure so that, you know, if we test 500 different products, mm. maybe 25 will become hits. Right. One out of, one out of 20. But I'm not going to go broke on the 475 that were not hits. Right, right, right. No, no, you know, you know what's interesting? It kind of ties back to your previous point, which is that um, sometimes when I speak to people, uh, uh, the, the argument is like, they're, they're like, well, how come you're so sure of what decision you're about to make? 
And I always remind them, I'm like, well, it's pretty hard to make a decision if you're unsure, right? If my assumptions are this is going to be wrong, I'm more than likely not to make that decision to start with. And, and that kind of frame of mindset is sort of entrepreneurial in nature in the sense that we look at it from the point of view of like, okay, you know, there's eight options here. I don't know which one's going to work. I do know that I want to play in all of them in case one of them does work, but I need to figure out the best way to minimize my cost so that even if all eight are wrong, that I don't go ruin, right? Correct. The ruin state is what we want to always avoid. And I think that's what it is that you've been trying to articulate because Correct. of various experiences of changing the way you do business depending on the uh, epoch that we're in. Correct. Absolutely correct. So question is this then. So let's imagine it the, the, in the following regard, right? So some businesses actually can uh, and do um, maintain steady state uh, revenue, sort of like imagine if you opened uh, one of the best apple pie shops that just sold coffee, apple pie, and that's it. That's all you did in some street corner in New York. And that business is steady state because everybody loves apple pie. And if your coffee is half decent, you're always going to get the right, the same number of customers. And the market sort of prices all that in and there's no real quote unquote growth for that business. Whereas what people want in, in the modern day society is they want explosive growth and explosive growth can only come if there's no predictability uh, priced in, which is why uh, when they look at Amazon, there's this constant assumption that in the future, some sort of explosive growth is coming, but in the present, they'll just keep giving them really, really cheap money so they can go and buy a whole other businesses and quote unquote disrupt other uh, industries. What's your take? Well, I mean, well, I mean, there's a, there's a lot wrapped into what your question um, uh, was articulated. The the first issue is one of growth. Mm. Okay, um, one can have um, convexity um, without complete um, in exponential growth. I think that that you know uh, an apple pie shop okay mm -hmm. um its relationship to uh, its cost to its revenue i think it can be you know you know linear somewhat flat but um it's it, you know i'm not a fan of growth at any cost mm. okay now that the the 21st century you know from the dot com forward Mm. Okay, we've been hooked on growth, 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 without any kind of fundamental, um, you know, profitability baked in. Mm. And 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 if you want to talk profitability, is Lindy this mm. growth at any cost is not. And and I think that it is, you know, disastrous for most companies, almost all. Okay, we work that, you know, is a, the largest um, real estate holder in the United States right now. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they are, you know, they've grown, 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 and they're bleeding, 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 bleeding. Okay. Right. Um, so I, you know, I, I am somewhat very skeptical about the hockey stick growth without profit you know if, you, if you're going to have profit real profit and mm. not creative accounting profit <laughs> then then you know knock yourself out but you know i don't see that um elon musk comes from the growth 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 but when he was at paypal mm. paypal had hockey stick growth 
and real prophet. Right. Okay. But right. he had not rec recreated that in anything else. Right. Right. Because, right. Right. Because he has not associated um, real prophets with growth. He's become too growth centered. Okay. And, uh, you know, and he's trying to apply the lessons that he learned at PayPal, but they are not fully recognized lessons. So uh, I, I'm not a big fan of his, as you probably know. I, I have noticed. So, so the way I <laughs> the, the way I reconcile that is like I I, I actually um, uh, I like Elon as a person in the sense like I think he's very creative and he's, he's somebody who needs a Tim Cook in his life to to make it work. However, I wouldn't bet on him either, right? In the sense that I do what Paul, our, our, our mutual friend, says is that I just let it trade. I watch it. I wouldn't buy uh, a Tesla. I wouldn't uh, buy Tesla stock. Uh, but I wouldn't outright uh, bet, uh, bet against them either. So I'm, well, it's one of those things where I'm like, you know what? There's a lot of assumptions built into this particular person's approach to doing business. And I think you and I uh, sort of uh, vibe with it on this front, which is that a lot of these, um, uh, and, and this word really bothers me, is this concept of quote-unquote visionary. And a visionary mm -hmm. must have a plan that's 200 years uh, down the road and we must uh, you know, colonize the universe and all that stuff, which is fine. Uh, it's just not something you could run a business off of, which is to say, look, I'll run this business at a loss, but I'll generate enough revenue. And in the process, what I'm really hoping for is to put out all my competitors so that eventually I can jack the rates up and I can turn a profit. And I think that's the only viable way that I see some of these business practices, um, you know, mapping itself onto reality, which is that if you keep undercutting everybody as a, uh, you know, the, uh, I think the first problem here came out with the idea of a loss leader which is to sell gum at a loss at the front of the, the checkout in the hopes that somebody will pick up some, I don't know, uh, some tabloid magazine or whatever. And in the process that that gum allows you to go and, and, and fork on three or four other purchases, uh, it really opened the door to this idea that uh, if we just chase revenue, eventually we'll put our customer our competitors out of business and then we can own that market. Whereas well, I think I mean, it's, 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 a nice, it's a nice analogy, except that the... Um, the transaction of giving away the, the gum for the, uh, you, know, you, you know, for buying three other things, they're making a profit right then. It's not, uh, it's not going forward. Now, the razor, razor blade analogy where I'm going to lose money selling the razor, but I'm going to make, make it up, uh, you know, over time, okay? Well, you figure, well, how many, how many months... Of, you know, is it going to take for Gillette to, mm. uh, you know, to, to, to get back the cost of the razor because they're essentially giving it away. And interestingly enough, Gillette, um, you know, reported terrible earnings because of the Dollar Shave Club. Okay? Mm. <laughs> because there's and and what they said is that millennials are not shaving like their parents did. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And and so they're not using much razor. So the, you know, a lot of things change. And Gillette is a you know a hundred you know thirty year old company, and mm -hmm. they're still they were still acting as if they're uh, you know the future looks like the past. But you know uh, I I know uh, all three of my millennial sons, um, <laughs> they have various stages of of uh, you know. Five day beard, seven day beard, ten day beards. <laughs> okay. <laughs> right, right. 
But all that would do, if you, if you really think about it, is if you even if you project that into your 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 um, future business, if you're running a razor company, it doesn't mean they stop shaving completely. It just means that the rate against which you can uh, expect renewals is a lot lower. So therefore, you adapt your, your your cost model to say, okay, since this is happening, we need to just reduce costs on this front so that we can still uh, maintain profitability. But from what you're stating here. It sounds like they've basically missed that boat and they've just continued to push the way they used to without having a reality check come back in until when that last earnings came through, right? Right. And, 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 then, and then it's a self-feeding loop. So they're going to say, oh, I can't afford as much mm. uh, uh, as much money to mm. spend to uh, acquire a new customer. So I'm mm. going to spend less. Mm. And therefore, I have less new customers. And so it actually is now bending back. So they're 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 becoming really concave because they're getting less new customers, and mm. it's taking longer to break even because of you know people are shaving less. So they've got a couple of negatives. But I mean the, the you know I, I'm not an expert in that particular uh, you know you know industry, mm. but the issues are the same across just about all domains. Right. So it's not. You know, while we're talking about entrepreneurship, which is, you know, what where I love, mm -hmm. um, it, the issues are the same whether you're a surgeon or, uh, mm -hmm. you know, you're you're, uh, uh, you know, you're talking about um, health with, mm -hmm. you know, I hope you get guru to be on your uh, um, podcast, for example. Yeah. yeah, we're planning it. Okay, so I mean, there's a, a a lot of, you know, the, the concepts are the same across all domains, which is, by the way, which is why I've gone to the Real World Risk Institute probably more than anybody else. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, you you were one of the more um, requested for guests because, uh, from what I hear, I've never attended myself, is that you're the one who always voices disagreement uh, as soon as anybody says something that doesn't rub you the right way, which is kind of like, uh, you know, that's the kind of person I like talking to. Which is that well, if you <laughs> well, you know what actually uh, I, I think what it is is that I'm on a war mm. against positive assertions. Mm. Okay, so because the, uh, almost all of our positive assertions, mm. see, I'm I'm really comfortable with via negativa, right. and and the whole idea of critique, which right. is the essence uh, via negativa and critique. And to dissect, it doesn't matter whether it be, you know, politics, uh, war, religion, to, you know, business. Um, I, I, I'm, I seem to gravitate towards what's messed up mm. um, than what's right. And mm. so, um, w you know, the instructors, whether it be Joe, Joe, by the way, is a mm. magnificent instructor. <laughs> I am telling you, he is phenomenal. And I mean, and of course, you know, Nassim is too, but um, I'm, whenever there's a positive assertion, I'm mm. the one kicking the tires saying, well, you know, how certain are you of this? <laughs> right. Yeah, right. And when you, when you start to, uh, you know, you know, kick the tires, mm. you find out that actually, you know, we're not certain about much. Right. Right, right, right. Right. You know what? It, it's funny the, the concept of via negativa. I just, as you were talking about it, it kind of clicked in my mind with the earlier statement with regards to time burns all assumptions, right? So if you're if you are via negativa and you're strong on that front, 
the assumptions you carry with you forward are few and far between. And hopefully that increases your odds of survival. <clears throat> and so I think what, what makes this interesting and in, in, in particular to the tribe is as follows, right? So most people are looking for ways to maximize uh, quote unquote profit or revenue or whatever the case may be. Market share is, is, is always a big one, especially in the tech world. Uh, but you and I come at it from the point of view of that if you survive long enough, your competitors who chased um, the wrong things eventually go out of business and then you can capitalize much more uh, effectively because you're in a position to do so versus everybody else's approach, which is revenue, revenue, revenue. No, there's no actual consideration towards profit. And only in a world where interest rates are so low can this actually even be considered a viable quote unquote strategy. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely correct. Um, the, the, the idea that it, I keep coming back to crushing down the cost of failure mm. and that the hits will take care of itself. Mm. Uh, I'm not an optimizer. Mm. I, don't, uh, I believe that those that want to maximize efficiency mm. um, when it comes to human processes, I mm. think that you can, you know, uh, you know um, there's a reason we have two lungs, re reason we have two kidneys. Mm. Um, One has brains. Correct. And so... <laughs> Right. And so so what happens is that I don't really spend much time trying mm. to optimize mm. and maximize profit profits. Uh, you know, I, I have a business model in mind that automatically will should we find hits. Right. Okay? right. So um, I, I obsess about how can we test more, mm. test more products and mm. be. How can I get more media at zero marginal cost? If I can right. take care of those two things, mm. then then the, the, then I know that the model is convex, and that, that's fine. But I, I I don't spend I don't spend a whole lot of time, mm. you know, um, optimizing or you know, talking about efficiency. Mm. You know, we we have customer service in house. Mm. We don't want our people to be on the phones, you know. We, we if if they're on the phones more than seventy percent of the time, mm. you know, we've got a problem. There's no right. elastic. <laughs> right. You you need you need to give you know. You you need to be able to breathe. Okay. Right, right, right. No, I I hear you. And 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 what's interesting is um is as follows, right? So for me, I try to look at businesses and I try to find people who do. Um, generalized set of ideas applied across the board. And in the NBA, uh, MBA uh, stream of thought, uh, and I almost went to do my MBA. Uh, luckily, I, I was smart enough to start a company instead and learn uh, the hard way how business actually works. Um, the thing that I found interesting was that both schools at Ruri and the MBA at Harvard or Wharton um, tried to teach two ideas, right? So each one is like, here's a set of ideas that works across all businesses. Ruri's idea is actually quite the opposite. What it says is these are the ideas that definitely won't work across all businesses. And one focuses on how to avoid ruin. The other one focuses on how to become really, really rich. And you could instantly tell which one is going to survive the Lindy test of time, right? Mm -hmm. And I think your obsession with um, uh, clipping the left tail and, and, and paying attention to uh, how risk can actually destroy any beautiful business uh, plan you may have, any projections you may have wanted, that sort of goes back to Mike Tyson's concept that, you know, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the face, right? Correct. 
So, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, and you know, I I I know that you 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 code. A lot of coders don't like me very much. <laughs> but I, but uh, I love uh, you. This is the. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, uh, Bill Gates said, if you apply, you know, uh, you know, you know, uh, I'm going to paraphrase him, but if you apply these processes of efficiency to mm. in inefficient processes, mm. okay, you you you're gonna that are inherently inefficient. You're going to make it worse. Okay, there's certain things that you can, you know, optimize and make things more efficient. Um, but you know, I'm I'm really a, a redundancy guy. That's what I that's what I, uh, I spent you know think a lot about. You know, so which is kind of almost opposite of efficiency. You know what's interesting about that? Um, uh, software developers come in two flavors, right? So there are the quote-unquote developers, and there's there's the um, uh, engineers. And I'll give you the distinction between the two. Um, and uh, the distinction is that if you write code that you use, you're a developer. If you write code that everybody uses over time, you're an engineer because now people depend on what it is your code was supposed to do. And so therefore you have to put a little bit more thought into it to make sure that it doesn't uh, disrupt the flow of everybody else's um, uh, usage of code. And here's what makes that interesting. So as you learn fundamentals, because I, I work with uh, younger software developers all the time or people just starting out, and they always ask me, Ace, how do I get good at this job? And how do I do this, that? And how do I land that job that pays X thousands of dollars per year? And I always tell them the same thing. I'm like, the fundamentals of computer science have been the same since um, uh, Alan Turing and, and John von Neumann kind of created it. Those don't, didn't change. What changes is what you see on the surface and how it, it kind of looks prettier and all that, but the bottom layer of stuff of it is almost always so statically slow in terms of how it moves because you're constrained by the complexity of the real world. The physics, the laws of physics are not going to bend and yield to your desire to make things quote unquote hockey stick growth. There's a concept in, in computer science called Amdel's law, which is that if you take a process and you want it to do some sort of computation on it, there's gonna be a bottleneck of something where it can only be done serially. The stuff that you could do in parallel, sure, you can actually make it faster if you just take the data, chunk it out, and put it on multiple computers and have all the computers do the computation at the same time, and then take all the results and aggregate it and spit out the, the response, which is sort of what these big data analysis uh, engines are all about. But even within that constraint, it doesn't mean you have a free-for-all hand to do whatever it is you want to do, because individually, inside one of those uh, computers, there's going to be one calculation that's going to slow everything down to the point where it's going to take 90% of the cost of your um, quote-unquote speed up, and it's going to swallow it whole. And so the people who understand that understand exactly what it is you just said, which is that, and this is where I get really um, into uh, sort of quote-unquote Twitter disputes with, with some of my friends who are, and I'm definitely in their camp. Don't get it twisted. I'm, I'm a software developer through and through. But this idea that, oh, machine learning is going to lead to like artificial intelligence and all that stuff. And I always remind them that, listen, when, when databases came into existence, that's like we discovered a horse, right? Before that, we were all walking. Now that we got machine learning, that's like we discovered an airplane. But artificial intelligence, that's like flying to Alpha Centauri, right? The, space, the airplane that you have, the model that you've created that's giving you some new capabilities still has to work within the boundaries of the Earth. It cannot, an airplane, no matter how good it is, is not going to fly into space. Right? So the mania, I think the thing that makes you sort of almost instinctively distrust all the media and the hype that goes around the, the, the tech world is very, root, uh, uh, very much rooted in the reality of looking at the re, uh, what is possible versus what's marketed as possible. And I think those two things is what rubs you the wrong way.
Yeah, there's there. Um, also, um, there are different domains. Okay, mm. as an engineer, okay, mm. I think engineers are great at working with bridges. Okay, mm. and and um, they're not really good with. Um, are, are, are we still on? Yeah, yeah, we're still okay. on. Okay, all right. Yeah. Um, engineers are not real good. In human, in human endeavors that mm. that are, you know, uh, whether it be, um, you know, sales and marketing to, you know, they they want to apply the same kind of processes mm. of the bridge or physics or mm. you know, to human issues, and it's kind mm. of like a reductionism that we uh, that that human activity does not yield to mm. okay so that um our, our friend you know trishank and i we we disagree because he you know there's no uh there's no no limitation in mm. the human domain because mm. basically you know i i i i'm not a i'm not a philosophical materialist okay mm. so um you know, I, I think that there's something different in the human domain that mm. doesn't uh, allow us to mm. apply the same kind of engineering processes to. Right, right. Well, I see in that in that regard, I, I have a foot in both camps, and, I, and I'll, I can tell you where I can bridge sort of the divide between where you stand and where Trishank stands. I'm not speaking on his behalf, but I'm sort of right, right. speaking in general terms. But the thing is, the argument from Trishank's camp and, and that whole side of it is that Yes, the problem that you're describing is very, very complex, and it's difficult to do. But all you have to do is get it right once. And once you get it right, then it sort of opens the door open to, to almost all the other possibilities that we're always uh, uh, dreaming of. So that's where the hang-up tends to be, which is that you're right, the odds are low, the odds are very difficult in the sense of the, the mountains you have to climb and the algorithms you have to find and, and, and all the stuff that needs to be done. But we just have to get it right once. And that's where I think the hang-up is. It's that, that um, there's no reconciliation between people wanting it to be everything and, and people saying it can't be everything. And, 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 and that's why I have put both camps, because I can appreciate both sides of that argument. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. <laughs> so in that regard, uh, uh, let's talk about this, uh, this idea of, um, uh, of how you use social media, considering you sp spoke about media in general being a way to tap into your customer base. Do you apply those same principles through social media or do you just leave that as a separate beast all on its own? Um, well, A, um, I, if we talk about me personally, mm -hmm. okay, um, no, I, I don't use social media for business. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, now, um, you know, I communicate I use it to connect with the tribe. I deactivated my Facebook account. I mm. um, I have an Instagram account, but I've never used it. Um, mm. LinkedIn, I, I have it, but I don't use that. Um, now, we do own a data company. Mm. Okay. And we do have in here um, our marketer, our marketing department. We'll hmm. go and advertise on Facebook and Google and um, and Twitter, hmm. and our data company um, has the ability to identify people who visit 
our website that don't fill out anything by using a cookie. On okay. A, I, we identify a cookie on a browser, and actually we've we've filed for a patent on on this. So what the everybody understands what web retargeting is, and that okay. is you know you you go to Chevy.com and all of a sudden you're on Yahoo or 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 Facebook and the ad follows you where you're going. Right. But it's about eight or nine years old. Mm -hmm. What we did was take it to the next step, and we have a database of 364 million U.S. emails, and this is only good for the U.S., mm -hmm. married to about 108 million uh, U.S. households. Mm -hmm. And we put a pixel on Pulse TV, mm -hmm. and we identify and we suppress all the buyers and all the emails that we already have, and we look mm -hmm. for a cookie on the browser. Mm. Once we find that, mm. it, um, it, it goes to, um, it's matched against this 364 million. And mm. so we know that they're on our site. We know what page they landed on. And then we can retarget them what, mm. what, what they, they did. So we don't find social media very successful on its own. But when we layer in owning, huh, so you could pay a dollar a click, mm. but we own this, this huge data. We add about eight to 10 million records a month. Right. Uh, and they come from 12,000 different websites on, in the U.S. Okay. So um, we can identify these people for pennies, whereas mm. you're paying a dollar for a click. And then right. we spun that after... After doing that for a year and a half, we spun it out into its own company okay. to offer it to other marketers. I see. I see. So the, the question I have on that front is that now that there's a big... So, so that model that you just described mm -hmm. uh, is obviously a, an effective strategy to deploy uh, technical know-how in order to Correct. Sort of, uh, follow customers around and, and get their targets. But, but now that there's a... It seems like there's a tide of, of, of uh, privacy being shifted in the sense that people are not necessarily quite comfortable with this process. So how, right. do, you, how do you clip your left tail knowing that that's what's, where the direction is going? What are you going to do to make sure that you can still uh, profit off the investment you made in that company uh, while in the face of being in a, an environment where everybody's kind of shifting away from that process? Well, I mean, uh, the, the company has already, uh, already uh, you know, broken through and... and you know, um, replenished and, and paid back all the money it cost to start. So it's, okay. it's also cash flow positive. So it, it's already got a clip left tail, but, but um, the, um, the European standard, the GDPR, which is yep. the privacy laws, um, yep. which are coming, um, California in January starts that. And, and quite literally, what all the European companies are, you need to get positive, uh, you, you need to get positive agreement that they uh, yeah. will follow, that agree to your cookie policy. Mm -hmm. And almost everybody gives it anyway. Oh, okay. okay. So that's one. But two, if the privacy laws made it illegal, mm. okay, then we would just shut it down, okay? And so we're not at risk of, of, of it's, there's no concave issue, mm. okay? Um, and, you know, Google, see, the, the big guys, Amazon, Google, Apple, 
<coughs> Facebook, mm -hmm. Twitter. They have all your email. And, right. they, and they could, um, you know, give the marketer the email address, but they don't. They mm -hmm. use they use that data. They mm -hmm. use that data for their own selling of advertising. Right. So, um, the, the fact that we figured a way out to do this without them. Mm. Okay. We're not doing anything that they don't do. Right. So Gmail, you know, does exactly what we do. They're using first party data, as they say. Mm. We're using third party data. Third data. Right. Okay. But, um, you know, yeah. uh, the, 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 there are some companies that will not do what we're doing. And that's, you know, I, they're uh, leaving huge amounts of money on the table. I mean, huge amounts of money on the table. But they, they, they think it's creepy, and I get it. You know, mm. I mean, I, I thought web retargeting, and I still do. It, mm. it, is, it is creepy, but it's very, it's extremely effective. Mm. So, so how do you reconcile the, so, so let's put, let's put our um, uh, business caps aside for a second. Let's put on the philosophical hat. And, and ask you the following question. How do you reconcile the, the charge that would be laid uh, at your feet on this front to say that you're basically participating in the surveillance capitalism society and you are but another venue for which to, um, you know, follow people around and, and then, like you said, it's creepy. But how do you, how do you, I get the money that's on the table and, you, you know, you're trying to maximize your profit on that front when you can, but how do you... Uh, like, where do you land on that particular front? Because you and, have, you and I have had discussions about a different particular uh, topic that revolves around this. And that was related to the state. But how do you how to deal with um, uh, the ethical uh, dilemma of should yeah. you do this? All right. right. The, uh, the, the, the key for me, mm. okay, and the difference between, um, between um, state surveillance and this is that every single one of the people have given permission. So mm. remember I said they go 12,000 websites? Yeah, yeah. Okay. So they went to, let's say they went to uh, sweepstakes.com mm -hmm. or they went to mortgagecalculator.com and mm -hmm. they give them all this information mm -hmm. and, then, and then they give them that information. Precisely, it's free. Right. For, and I'm going to put that in quotation marks. But it's free to the extent that the terms and services gives those websites, these 12,000 websites, the right to sell, rent, or send third-party offers to. Okay. See. Right? And so, and so ours is permission-based. Mm. Even though Joe Smith in Paducah, Kentucky, mm. didn't remember going to paydayloans.com, filling mm. it out, and, all the, and give, giving this permission, and it's been sold. But the other thing is that when somebody comes so through that process and then they come to Pulse TV mm. website, well, they've given permission there and then there's some kind of affinity. We don't mail those 364 million people unless mm. they come to our site. Right, 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 right. I see what so you they've mean. Given, they've given permission and they've given us, they, they're visiting our website and we know what they visited. Do I still think it's creepy? Yes, I do. Okay. <laughs> um, but um, the, you know, the, the state surveillance is, is, is not even, there's no permission there. 
Mm. Um, And with Google, all all the the major competitors out there, they do this. That doesn't that doesn't cut muster in the um, ethical dimension. Just because Google does it doesn't mean that it, it becomes reasonable. But they have given us permission. Right, right. So, so the only pushback I can give on that front, and I'm just playing devil's advocate, so please sure. um, bear in mind this is not meant to be a pointed uh, disregard of your previous statements, but the following is, is the question I'll ask is, um, even though they did give permission, which is valid and true, the real question is, are they even informed enough to know what kind of permissions they gave? Well, you and I both know what's happening on the other side of that, that transaction. They have almost zero clue. Yeah. So regard. I mean, it, it, and and that's that that's a fair point. Is, mm-hmm. is giving consent and giving informed consent are two different things. Right. Okay. And 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 um. You know, it, it certainly grinds against it. I think what's going to happen very soon because mm-hmm. of the California privacy laws in January. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, we're going to get. Um, informed consent now, mm. starting in January. Okay, okay. But I mean, your, your point's well taken, uh, you know, and and uh, I can say that, uh, um, you know, you know, there's there's not a a, a great a great uh, um, ethical defense mm. other than you know this uh, weasel clause. You know, on on twelve thousand websites that nobody ever reads. You know. <laughs> <laughs> no, I hear you. I hear you. So I'll, I'll relay a story for you that you may find interesting on this front. Um, so a few years ago, um, uh, Steve Jobs had just announced the ability to put ads in free apps on the iPhone, and uh, they had just announced this particular uh, set of ideas. And I emailed them and I said, "Hey, listen." Um, you're doing exactly what everybody else does, which is you're 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 basically spraying and praying for a result, right? In the sense that you hope that these ads that you're going to bring onto your platform are going to be valuable enough that they can actually pay back the developers for engaging and allowing those ads to be on your device. And his response, which I found, uh, you know, I didn't expect he's going to read that email, let alone respond to me. But he responded to me and he said, you know, what exactly is what do you propose as the as as an ultimate solution? And to this day, I really haven't come across a valid way to deal with that problem in the following regards. Because to me, a free ad for something I don't want is irrelevant, whereas an ad that targets exactly what I'm looking for is much more relevant. So the problem is a company that sits in the, in the, in the business of selling ads, i.e. Facebook or Google, are going to be primed to do, deliver that. Whereas a company like Apple, it's not even in their DNA to attempt to solve that kind of problem, which is why I found it interesting that now they're encouraging all their app developers, and I, you know, I used to be one who was working with a couple of these companies and hope to do so again in the future, is the argument is, please um, sell your product and uh, add a subscription model to it so that you can have recurring revenue so you don't have to resort to uh, tracking customers and, and, and you know, selling their data to third-party uh, vendors. And third-party has a wide definition. It can only mean governments, right? So Sure. I mean, choice point... Um, they're a large data company that their number one uh, client is the uh, you know the NSA, so right. and they send data. But um, it's uh, you you bring up an interesting point about uh, um, targeting, by the way, mm-hmm. and 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 I'm not a big targeter, 
And, and, I, and I'll tell you why. Okay. Because as marginal costs go down to zero, mm -hmm. it negates the necessity to target. So when I was in the direct-to-consumer catalog business and I was sending mailing out a catalog to a consumer, it was costing about a dollar twenty-five to a dollar fifty to get uh, a catalog into that consumer's hand. Um, now um, it's costing me four pennies to reach a thousand people. Mm. So what um, I, I've asked several people mm. uh, this question. I've talked to a lot of marketers who be, who talk about targeting, targeting, targeting. I said if you could reach 7 billion people on the planet free mm. Mm. or reach the 100,000 people most likely to buy from you but pay $10,000, which one would you do? Right. Well, yeah. you know, those 100,000 people are subsumed in the 7 billion or whatever, right? Right, right. And, and, and almost everybody says, well, I, you know, I want to do targeting. Okay. <laughs> And, and I said, well, I said, look, um, as targeting, as your marginal costs go down, the mm. need for targeting goes down. Right. And that's why I, I bring to marketers and, and entrepreneurs to understand the whole idea of what zero marginal costs mean to your business and what are they, okay? Um, the the cost of serving an extra banner on your website is zero. Mm. Okay, the, uh, to to serve an extra page view is so close to zero. I'm going to call it zero. But I mean, four pennies to reach a thousand people—that's what our deployment costs are because we deploy internally. Right. So so um, you know, and I will tell you that if you want to sell me something. Mm. Well, you want you want to be able to hit my wife. <laughs> <That's> not me, <laughs> okay. <laughs> you know, right. you know. So, so at best, you should do fuzzy targeting. You want to target mm. around it, but um, I, I will, I will. While I understand what you're saying, that you may find an ad, you personally may find an ad that is geared towards your interest, with mm. more, you know, more interest mm. and more interesting for sure. Okay, and maybe get irritated for getting, you know, uh, you know, some, uh, you know, you know, some athlete's foot powder. Okay? <laughs> right. <laughs> but um, this ties into what we do by trying to create demand. Right. And we know that we can do that only because we have such low cost of media. Right, right, right. So, so, so it, it comes almost full circle in terms of that that philosophy. But mm. so I don't talk very much about targeting, except mm. anti-targeting. <laughs> <laughs> so, how would you uh, counter Rory's point of sending a strong signal versus a cheap message? Um, well, um, if if um, I, I would argue that if let me go to the asymptote, something that costs zero. Mm -hmm. I, would, I would opt. I would opt to send that then uh, a strong, a strong uh, targeted message any time because 
It's based upon what I don't know. I don't know what you're interested in, when you're interested in it, or, or whatever. Mm. And then I'm making the assumption that this is a strong signal to Ace or to you, Ember. Or to mm -hmm. you know, I'm making you know. It's much more humble to do it the way I'm saying. Saying, mm. look, I, it, it's not based upon what I know. It's actually based upon what I don't know. Mm. Okay, and I don't know what you're doing, when you're doing it, uh, what time or whatever. So I spend all of the time trying to crush down those costs to get to as close to zero marginal cost as I can mm. because I really don't have enough smarts to target. <laughs> okay. Okay, so so I'll give you an example of... Um... Uh, where I think the future may be going. It's not there yet, but I think this is where it's going. So somebody like myself, I have a, I have my own network at home that I configure my own DNS router, my own gateway, my own switches, my own um, access points, all that stuff. And one of the things I do on my gateway is I deploy a strategy that every night it goes to GitHub and it actually pulls down the list of all the ad servers on the planet because people aggregate those and it brings it down to my machine and so anybody at my house, when they visit uh, any, kind of, any kind of website, uh, the request gets sent out to the web. The website sends back the, the, the content I'm interested in. And they also send back all those ads from all those particular networks that serve these ads. But the minute they hit my, ga they hit my gateway, my gateway just says, cool, you ads go here on the right side of the lane, left, uh, on the left lane, uh, all the content goes back to the devices. And none of the devices see any of the ads. Mm -hmm. And I think what's been happening there is that the... The revulsion towards being constantly drowned in various forms of advertising for the sake of generating demand, as you as you've stated, is creating a stronger backlash that may be um, gaining momentum as we go forward. And so, my question to you in this regard is: that I get I get your point, which is that you know you have, you have almost zero cost of doing this, but eventually, aren't you just risking really upsetting your customers because you're constantly chasing down these? Uh, uh, pathways of aggregating data from you know pixels like you stated or tracking cookies and eventually you become the target of 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 malignment on the internet so to speak and then that damages your reputation it damages your brand it damages all the other things that you've built up over time so how do you clip against that left tail um well um we get we we measure how many complaints per thousand that we send out okay okay and because we're we're so uh, you know aggressive, and we get about four complaints per thousand. Okay. Okay, which 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 is you know uh, considerably higher than those that opt in. Right. When they opt in, we're getting one per thousand. I see. Complaint. Okay. Okay. And what happens is that is that um, I think that just like uh, you know we we have. An overwhelming amount of advertising. We're we're over advertised. Okay. Right, right. Um, and you know, is is it is it uh, are we on the horizon of a an advertising apocalypse? <laughs> I think that not. I think not. I don't think that the internet works without it. I mean, <laughs> you're not going to go to paid. You know, people are overwhelmed. Now, what's going to happen is that as effectiveness goes down, mm. okay, all right, as effectiveness goes down, mm. um, then you'll find 
a lot of changes. But for for us, okay, I don't really obsess too much about effectiveness. I'm working on the cost. I find that 99% of the people are working on the other side. They want mm. to make their ads more effective. Mm. Okay, and mm. and and and, uh, and I think they've got more of a problem. Mm. Right, right, because because they're chasing the wrong side of that equation. They're chasing the wrong side. Now, mm. I, I just don't see. I you know I just don't see. Um, you know, uh, an advertising free internet. Hmm. Mm. Well, I mean, I hope we get to that state one day because uh, I'll be honest with you, because one of the side effects of that particular problem that you just described is that the Internet is not really a public square, so to speak. It's like when you jump on the uh, Twitter to talk to the crew, we're really not free to speak to the crew as we see fit. We're basically on their network. And if they decide that our opinion, uh, because we tend to be apolitical in nature in the sense that we're outside the the you know left versus right uh, you know elitist point of view we were more about the you know adapt and survive uh, to, to borrow a phrase from Mike um, if we decide one day that we're no longer um, able to come onto their platform we really don't have any kind of recourse in that regard because essentially this service has been given to us for free so there's this hidden cost that's built into the internet from day one you know look at I I think that there is just like there's a basic there's free uh, free TV and cable TV that you pay for okay um, I could see you know um, us if we wanted to have a tribe forum and if somebody wanted to create a tribe forum mm -hmm. and in this forum you know we'd have you know a few hundred thousand people from the tribe mm -hmm. you know would 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 uh, you know um, what percentage would pay ten dollars a year right 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 I, I see what you're saying okay I, I you know um now um I, I think that you'd, you'd find that you're gonna have pockets you know I mean the Wall Street Journal is a successful pay model the Wall right. Street Journal is um but the Guardian is not or or you know very few the Boston Globe is not um New York Times is not very successful with their pay model um, you know, uh, but, uh, you know, they're going to be few and far between, but I, I think that, you know, using us and, and we would be much more free to say whatever it is that we want, because the tribe is not a politically correct group. <laughs> to say the least. Right. <laughs> right. And you know, so so you know, I, I'm making up ten dollars. Maybe it's five dollars. Maybe it's two dollars. I don't know. Right, 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 right. Well, you know what's interesting about that is uh, I, I was thinking about that same model because Apple just released their new um, Apple Plus service uh, content and whatnot, and they're essentially almost giving it away. But I, I thought about it, and it, and it kind of hits back to what you just stated, which is that content being generated for consumption. Is very difficult to monetize for the following reason. Let's say I put together a really, really, really amazing show, and I get the best director and the best actors and all the people involved, and it's a, in a class A production. We put it together, and I charge you and I charge Ember money to watch it, and you guys watch it. As soon as you're done watching it, I can't charge you to watch it again. You see what I'm saying? So the reason why I think some of these websites generate revenue and money and profit is because the content that they're streaming, in the sense of the ideas that they're pushing out there, are ideas that are of constant value and they're renewed and they're fresh and some of them are just basically stale 
talking political points, which is why the the numbers may not reflect because like one paywall system for the Guardian does not reflect what the Wall Street Journal is trying to really focus on. Um, so I think that kind of tension between the content you're you're generating online versus the the business that you have that's consistently necessary, i.e., if you sell razors, you're going to need razors. If you sell political talking points, you may be hot for a while, but eventually you'll become stale, right? So there's this knowing the boundaries of how to reconcile which business model you're really, which table you're actually sitting at when you're playing your cards, so you know what bets to place, and more importantly, which table you should just really walk away from. What is your take on that? Well, I mean, you know, um, um, there's a freemium model where you get free, and then and then um, you upsell. You know, you know, medium, for example, you get X number of free articles, and then they want to charge you five dollars a month. Um, you know, for me, um, you know, we tried. We we actually tried. We owned, and we still own a newsletter called Bizarre News. Okay. Okay. And it was extremely uh, popular back in the year 2000. And we had 240,000 subscribers that were oh. getting this three times a week and, and via email. And then we tried the, to upsell them into a premium Bizarre News. Okay. Right. <laughs> All right. And, and uh, you know, we got like 1% what, you know, converted. Okay, and it, it, you know it, that that's it. Um, and you know, so we we've gone, we've tried that, um, and that was one of our more popular newsletters or evenings, uh, and and we still publish it to this day. Um, you know, uh, it it's not it's been nonstop published you know, since 1998, I think it was. I would have thought since Twitter came into existence that the bizarre news business would have taken uh, been taken over by Twitter for on your behalf. Right, <laughs> <laughs> right. So um, you know, for for us, we we monetize it with our own our own ads, and uh, we we have uh, you know a company called Power Inbox that that puts ads inside it. So you know, it doesn't make a, a whole lot, but it it probably averages about a dollar. Fifty a thousand, mm. but the costs are four pennies a thousand. So makes right, right, it does make money. Yeah, but but not much. All right. So, what are t some tips you could give um, some budding entrepreneurs? Okay, one um, certainly one has to um, think of ruin first. Okay. Avoid ruin, okay? Two, there is no um, how-to tutorial that you can, you know, follow. It's almost like, uh, you know, it, it's very idiosyncratic to the entrepreneur. Three, um, one has to have overwhelming passion because there's going to be ups and downs. Okay, I don't think that you can actually learn entrepreneurship. It's almost like uh, I. It's almost like uh, uh, becoming a priest. It's like a calling. Okay. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right? That's All right. You know, and 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 maybe that's where my faith comes in. Okay, um, um, you have to be able if you're um, if you're a man. 
you better have the right kind of wife. If you are a woman, you better have the right kind of husband. Yep, okay? that's true. Um, because there are going to be a lot of times that you're not fully engaged at home while you're obsessing about your business. Okay. Right. Um, and um, I've been, you know, fortunate. I've been married 32 years, and uh, she's a, she's a saint. <laughs> she's a saint. Okay. Um, other practical um, advice is go ahead and make your projections and forecasts and build your model. Just mm. don't believe them. Mm. And that's absolutely critical because the more you believe in your own model, the more at risk you really are. Okay. Uh, you know, I, that, that, that's off the top of my head. Right, right, right. Because if you marry your model, you are unable to go on on dates with reality, right? There you. Oh, I like that. So, so the question. I, 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 I'm going to steal that one. <laughs> by all means, by all means. I, 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 I'll, I'll footnote you, Ace. <laughs> <laughs> I appreciate the the shout out. Uh, the the question I have for you on, on on that front is as follows, right? So, what what do you think is the thing that really distinguishes a good entrepreneur from a great entrepreneur? Because there are good ones, and somehow there are great ones. What in your mind makes a good one great? Is it that they just have a little bit more tolerance for uncertainty, or is it that they do? Is it that there's a, another variable at play that we haven't really uncovered here yet? Yeah, um, going from good to great um, is, you know, it's it's really difficult. Okay, um, and. You know, Einstein was asked, where do ideas come from? And he pointed to the sky and, and shrugged his shoulder and said, from God. Right. Now, he, now, he is uh, agnostic, if not atheist, okay? Right. Um, but um, where do ideas come from? The great entrepreneurs iterate and generate new hypotheses as the complex environment unfolds mm. and it is the most difficult quality to have um i i just posted a couple of days ago um an essay that general Patton, while well, he was a major at the time and he spoke of inspiration now, he was deeply religious. Now, an inspiration is a great word. Uh, inspire means to breathe into. Um, it is uh, the, the, I guess, the breath of God goes in, in, inside. It's very, very much what Einstein was talking about. Mm. But to be able to generate hypothesis after hypothesis mm. after hypothesis. You see, um, Joe Norman is, a, is an expert in evolution. And part of evolution is a never-ending iteration of mutations, mm. okay? It's not thoughtful iteration. Well, as an entrepreneur, we introduce our own thought to mutate our company. To be go from good to great, 
you have to be able to generate or mutate and create new hypotheses to mm. test. Mm. Okay. And that nobody knows where the that comes from. Okay, but people I you know, Steve Jobs was was one of the most brilliant people you know you could find. Okay. And, and he 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 meditated a lot. So mm. he he thought that his ideas came from reaching this uh, universal field, okay? Um it's it's very similar to uh, um throne uh, mysticism where um you know the whole idea of seventh heaven okay seven layers of consciousness and mm-hmm. uh, where steve jobs believed that as you meditate you dive deep down mm-hmm. and that's where new ideas are formed and this is what his idea and that's what a lot of meditators believe as well you know i don't know whether it be you know, God, whether it be reaching what's called the universal field or whatever, okay? But um, it's it's nebulous, mm. that's for sure. But that intangible quality, and it's intangible, right. is, is what, what moves you from good to great. Right, right, right. Well, see, I, I look at that, and I'm, you know, I'm a big fan of um, uh, Sufi Islam and the mystic poets of, of um, yes. Persia. And so for me, the idea that um, I think I've been trying to really convey is that this idea people have is that heaven is beneath you and hell is above you. And I think more like heaven, hell is in front of you, but if you walk through it, you can get to heaven. And the great idea is that weight on the other side of it is what essentially what the entrepreneur tries to do in the sense that the way they pull the world forward is they go through the hell of, you know, as you said, diving deep, whatever that may be, meditative state, you know, um, walks and whatnot. And then when they get to the other side, they see something that they think, oh, this connects all these dots, and they pull it back. And when they bring it back to everybody else, it seems obvious after they've shown you how it looks. That's right? correct. Yeah. You know, it, it's always obvious in the rearview mirror. <laughs> As you know, hindsight is twenty twenty for a very specific reason, right? Right. Which is hilarious because the contrast to that is the future is opaque. So if you... If you that that sort of ties everything that we've always been revolving around. I think one of the reasons, and I'll give you a, a story of this. The podcast here was really just an idea that I wanted somebody else to take over. Uh, I was like, listen, I, I listen to these podcasts. I'm not necessarily happy with the content, but the stuff I'm interested in, i.e., uncertainty, entrepreneurship, software development, you know, um, po- po- poetry, mysticism, all this other stuff, nobody really talks about. And I put it out there, and. It didn't go anywhere until you responded to it. I think it was kind of, you know, slowly gaining steam with some of the guys. And then you sort of mentioned how, you know, m- people misunderstand the concept of anti-fragility. And then when you mentioned that, it, it kind of got more retweets with the crew. And all of a sudden, I think, I'm not sure who it was, but somebody hit me back and said, well, why don't you put your money where your mouth is? Or why don't you start this thing? And I did exactly what you did, which is that, you know, we're recording these things on, on Skype. It doesn't have to be an expensive process. And I don't really care about the number of subscribers on YouTube or, 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 or any other media because for me, it's like, well, I enjoy these conversations um, and Ember enjoys these conversations. And I think our guests enjoy the conversations. We record all this. We dump it onto all the particular uh, platforms that people can enjoy. And it just started to gain kind of a life of its own. And none of it was planned in that regard. I didn't say, oh, on this day, we're going to get Jaffer. And then on that day, we're going to get Joe. And Because everybody was sort of up in the air at the point, right? So it kind of... It leads into that direction that you were talking about, which was that we didn't go out and, and, and invest a lot of money in making this podcast come to life. 
so far the podcast has essentially cost me um, maybe $150 in terms of costs. The rest wow. of spend time, right? Because all we do is just record via Skype and we edit a little bit of it and we chuck it up online and everybody enjoys it. At least that's what I think they do because they keep asking for more guests to come on and, and you know, add more value. And, 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 and I was surprised as how large you think the crew is. In my mind, the tribe, the crew, the Rory uh, guys and girls, uh, I was thinking it can't be larger than like 5,000 max. You're, you're, you're giving me a hint that it's actually a lot larger than that. It's just perhaps we haven't tapped into them yet. Yeah, no. Um, it, it, you know, the, uh, the popularity of Nassim and Joe, if you take a look at the combined following of those 5,000. So you really, um, you know, I met Nassim in, back in Montreal in 2012. Wow. And there was a gathering. Um, it was it, it, um, it, it wasn't on it was not uh, on uh, Twitter. It was a Facebook, and he was, you know what? I forgive. I think he was writing. Jeez, um, which which book was he writing? I you know, I'm I'm having a senior moment. I saw, but I mean, we were all very active. It was a Facebook, and there were only about maybe 250 of us, and, mm. and about 40. Um, we all went to Montreal. Okay. Oh wow! It, just, it was it was it was quite a quite an affair for three days. Okay. Mm. And and uh, we we you know that's when I met Virgil. Okay. Mm. Jed, John, Faithful Hamer. Mm. Um, you know, uh, uh, you know Nassim, Nicholas Teague. You know so. Um, there, there, so there may be, I guess, a series of concentric circles, mm. okay? And as you reach more and more domains, okay, so here, this is, you know, entrepreneur, we, we're basically, most of today we discussed entrepreneurship, which is probably the right thing for us to talk about. But <laughs> then, you know, then, you know, you, you know, um, Michael Driver, you know, mm. he's so so witty and smart and funny. Okay, um, you know, I, I I don't have any of his charm. Okay, but um, I don't think people do. Yeah, that's true. Um, and then I think you'll see. And Joe is, um, he's quite brilliant. I think you know that. Oh, for sure. Uh, and I think you'll like, you know, you know, Guru. And uh, applying the, these to his domain, so you have all these different domains, mm. and what you're doing is tying them all together, and you kind of have this, um, you know, eclectic mind, Ace. <laughs> and, and Amber, I, I don't know you except for the, you know the 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 uh, podcast, <laughs> you know, because I, I, I don't know. Are you on Twitter? Uh, yeah. Okay. Um, She's a quiet observer type. Okay. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but no, the the, um, the audience is it much is. larger. It really is than you think. Well, we look forward to, like I said, um, every time we run into a new member of the tribe, uh, we appreciate the, like you said, I think what, what's interesting is the thread that kind of weaves across domains. And uh, I happen to be fortunate enough to fall over this opportunity in regards that I can just sit there 
and talk to each person about their area of expertise. And I could somewhat relate a little bit to them. So it's enough to get the interesting conversation started, but it's almost always a full-blown uh, exposition of their point of view, which I hope that you felt like you've had uh, today. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> so we want to get into some other stuff. Uh, we had some questions for you from um, uh, you know, various locations and Twitter and whatnot. Uh, so here's a question for you. Given the state of unprofitability of something like Twitter, how do you see them surviving in the future, considering they haven't done exactly what you've been advocating this whole time, or clipping their left tail? Um, uh, they will be uh, subsidized by the government. Mm. You see, um, um, the government and states, mm. they require media to promote the narratives of power. Mm. And so they will subsidize them, and they already are. I mean, Google was subsidized by the NSA to the tune of $50 million to really launch themselves. Mm. Um, Sergey uh, Sergey was uh, in at Stanford, and he was given money to develop his algorithm called Birds of a Feather. Mm. So it was birds of a feather flocked together. So it was the whole NSA wanted to know, well, if you are a terrorist, you're going to hang around with other terrorists. Mm -hmm. um, and back in 1998, the United States had a program called Carnivore, which mm -hmm. was essentially to spy on every citizen. Mm -hmm. And uh, that was outsourced to companies like Google, Facebook, mm -hmm. Twitter, Mm. Amazon. Amazon sells um, first-party data. You know, um, I, back in the day, um, when I had the catalog, direct-to-consumer catalog company, we had the largest military collection that we sold via catalog, which is really interesting because I'm always so anti-war, but I've always been fascinated by military people and and. Uh, war. Mm. And I get a call from the FBI and they visited me and they said, well, we understand that you've been selling um, videos to the Russian embassy. Really? To the Soviet embassy at the time. Okay. And, and, and I said, okay. Uh, we, I, I said, we, we sell to thousands and thousands of people. And mm. said, well, we want to know what what they wanted to buy. Mm. I said, well, you're asking me to violate the law. Right. Uh, um, because uh, Robert Bork was running, uh, was uh, nominated for Supreme Court justice and the opposition, the Democrats, went to his video stores and wanted to know what he was renting. They wanted to know if he was renting porn or whatever. Mm. And, and uh, so a law was passed not, for not giving, so that it was illegal to give information on what people bought or rented in mm -hmm. video. Well, so when I said, well, that's against the law, uh, you know, and I said, what you're asking me to do is be an FBI informer. Mm -hmm. And he, and and he said, well, I didn't, I, I didn't think that, uh, I wouldn't use those harsh words. I said, well, I didn't think being an FBI informer would be harsh to you. I said, look, I, I said, you can subpoena anything that you want, and I'll comply with the subpoena. But I'm just not going to give away what any person or organization 
buys because it's against the law. I'd be violating the law. Mm-hmm. Now, what Google, but so the government, if this happened to me, okay, I have a window into how it works. Mm. Okay, and then then um, I've written about the Google NSA connection, and mm. I know that Twitter, um, for example, Twitter, um, they have different rules in China versus and in the Middle East than they do in the United States. Mm. And now what we find is Facebook is, you know, they they got rid of uh, YouTube got rid of seventeen thousand channels. Well, there's a reason. So how these media companies are going to survive? is that they will be subsidized in order that they can propagate the myths and narratives of the oligarchs. So that's how they're going to survive. So here's a question then, follow up on that front is, so let's say <clears throat> these companies are now multinational and in, 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 in the way they deploy their technologies and, and their customers and user bases, how will the rest of the world react if the United States government is essentially funding one of the, the biggest lower sources of leaks of data from their country. Well, I mean, they, they already know it. It's, it's already happening. Mm-hmm. I mean, um, Amazon gives the government <coughs> detailed information on certain people, what they buy. Mm. Okay, so they have a profile. Oh, uh, this terrorist is going to buy this kind of fertilizer, this kind of, the, 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 these kind of ingredients. Okay, and, and they can buy it from Amazon. All right, so the, you know they, they have it. That's that's from Amazon, but um, they have different rules. Okay, one percent of all um, um, Google searches are eliminated in China mm. because Google wants access to the Chinese market, so they have to play by the China rules. Right. Okay, and it's no different in in liberal democracies. It's different, but we have the illusion that we have true freedom, and we have tr- freedom within the parameters, okay, of 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 you know the narrative that you know there's narrative construction, so to speak. So I, th- that is how it's going to be. Um, if, if they can't turn it around and they're necessary, mm. they'll just get subsidized. Right, right, right. So then the question is as follows, right? So <clears throat> somebody who works in this in the, in the field of software, I have a, a great appreciation for um, Nassim's point that he always harks on, which is the curse of dimensionality. I.e., no matter how much data you collect, eventually it becomes noise because you'll you'll be misled in so many different directions. So is the fear really warranted, or or is it just a, a sense of creepiness? Because the way I see it, and and, and correct me if I'm wrong, the reason we feel uh, weird and creeped out when somebody quote-unquote is following us is because instinctively it's the idea of a predator and prey. Right? So I don't like knowing that somebody's watching what I'm doing because in the wild if there's somebody watching what you're doing it's almost like they're, they're gonna try to kill you and, and have you for dinner, right? So when, when you reconcile that fact of it and, and decide that you know you collect all this data, you have all these profiles yet you're just generating noise after noise after noise, how do you foresee that story actually kind of coming together because in essence it's almost always useless information right well i mean uh, you know there's a lot of the, the problem of big data and nasim has actually proven this is the, the the problem of spurious correlation yes which is which is hinting about what you're, you're talking about and mm. i i can tell you that i've been down that road 
mm. um, back in the day when I was a quant, okay, mm. a quant marketer. Mm. And um, you spend so much money chasing mm. false positives. Right. Uh, what happens with the government is that that uh, you know um, you know Stalin says, "Show me the man, and I'll show you the crime," or something along those lines. <laughs> okay. Um, they they have data on everybody, so they they can have targets of choice. But mm. the, there's a lot of false positives that they're going to get. Mm. And they, they have. And I can tell you that within our own community here, you know, I'm Palestinian and mm. the Palestinian community here, um, all, all of the phones in Chicago have been bugged for, you know, from um, before 911. Mm. Um, are you, are yeah. you saying that now my phone has been bugged because I had you on Skype? Is that what you're telling me? Yeah, yeah, you are. Yeah, there's no question. Okay. <laughs> no question about it. I should have warned you. <laughs> I ran the agent listening to this. Right, right. You know what I mean? You know, they're, they're going to be very bored with my, my uh, chatter. Okay. <laughs> uh, well, okay. So that's good. Well, we're going to lead into the next set of questions, which is uh, related again to um, uh, this is actually a specific question from a person who uh, is starting a business and they, they don't necessarily want an online footprint, they just want like an old school business. Is that still possible in your mind? Is it still possible to run a business without having an online footprint if you're selling actual goods? Yeah, uh, of course. I mean, uh, a friend of mine has a hot dog stand. Um, <laughs> if you go to uh, New York and you see an awful lot of uh, a, an awful lot of street vendors, um, hmm. I, my I have a cousin that makes a really good living um, um, going to flea markets, and he buys. Um, not knowing what kind of business it is, but there's not everything, you know, you know, if you're, uh, think about being a massage therapist, uh, mm. you, know, you know, you're not going to have, you don't need to be online for that. I mean, you, you know, you could use marketing or whatever, but you don't need that. Um, you know, restaurants, you don't need an online president presence for um, owning a, a good restaurant. Mm. Um, there's one, uh, uh, my favorite steakhouse is, is just uh, f seven miles away from here. And Al Capone, it was one of his favorite places. And <laughs> it's been owned by the same family right. for generations for 130 years. Wow. Yeah. So, they don't need online. They, so, have, they have a website, but they don't need it. Right, right. So here was my question, right? So if you are, because I remember I actually reached out to you because I was trying to help a friend with a particular uh, business that was essentially localized on the point of... Um, you know, it was, a, it was a martial arts club. How would you advise customers who are in businesses of that sort to take advantage and, and leverage your experience and your knowledge so that they can actually add more to their bottom line in their business? Um, I would say that there's an art to creating joint partnerships. Okay. Okay. I'll give you an example. I had a restaurant that eventually went bust. Okay. <laughs> All right, this was this was many many years ago when I was um, in in grad school and mm. I had to leave the when my father got sick to run a restaurant that I knew nothing about. But it created these tremendous promotions that were extremely um, um, successful of generating a tremendous amount of traffic and and, and business, but we just couldn't sustain it. Mm. Um, by creating a partnership, 
Mm. Um, I created a partnership with a radio station whereby mm. we had Monday night football. We had big screen TVs and then they would come to every Monday night and, uh, you know, broadcast from the restaurant bar. OK, mm. and mm. we go through, you know, 12 kegs of beer in a night at 50 wow. cents. But I mean, and there, and it was no cost there. Right. So the question is, where do you have an affinity to create a partnership? Like I told you, Pulse TV, we created a partnership with infomercial marketers. Right. right you right. offered them something that they couldn't have, mm. that they couldn't do because right. you even asked, hey, why don't they do it themselves? Well, they, they don't have the expertise. They don't have the ability to, to source 500 products and um, we have five buyers and their business is selling one product, you know, to uh, to Target and Walmart and all those and selling millions. We're selling thousands. They're not interested. So if you're in martial arts, it is what kind of an affinity? Is it going to be a, uh, you know, a, what do they call the, the you know, the, you know, the. Oh, the, the the clothing they wear. Yeah, is it yeah, is it, yeah. is it a gi? Or no, I, I, I have no idea specifically to this particular one, but yeah, I, I kind of get what you're trying to get at. Right, right. Um, or you know, uh, yeah, you, you have to find. Therefore, you absorb. You you cut down your risk by mm. by finding something that they can't do, and they can do something that you can't do. Mm. I see what you mean. So uh, I think Ember had the next question on the list here. Ember, go ahead, yep. please. So how do you um, teach your boys your lessons? How do you pass down that information? Um, you know, I have three sons. Yep. One is a physical therapist, and then two, the other two work with us here. Um, I, I'm actually overwhelmingly gentle uh, because uh, I, I do, I write a lot mm -hmm. okay? I, and they read what I write and I'm here to answer questions. But I, I find that it, uh, the father-son relationship can be really um, tough if it's imposed on them. So mm -hmm. I'm here I will answer any question that they want, but I'm not force feeding them. I'm here um, to answer questions. Like when you ask me a question, Amber, yep. okay, I'll answer it. If they ask me, um, I'll answer it. I've written books, but um, I didn't force my brand of Islam onto my sons. Mm. They were free. Okay, my wife and I are, are are Muslim, but they 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 didn't cleave to it, uh, not not in the way that I would have hoped. But I didn't force them, and mm -hmm. I, I so I'm much more, um, you know, uh, I I'll mentor the other people in the office much more than my sons because they're much more open. Right? <laughs> I see. So so the question we had uh, from Paul was uh, if you do business with family. How do you maintain that relationship and maintain profitability without souring either side of the equation? Yeah, um, and, and and that goes to the why I also am much 
even with them here. Mm. Um, I, I happen to be lucky, um, you know, that um, my sons all are pretty good at what they do. I mean, uh, my oldest son is in charge of all the creative and he ends up buying about 40 to 50 percent of the products. He's mm. one uh, on the group. Mm. Um, and um, my other son um, is in charge of sales for Tricera, the data company. But mm. my sister and cousin, we, we co-founded this. And there's over overwhelming amount of love. Mm. That, that love matters. Mm. And we've been together through the ups and downs. And we do different things. Right. All right. If we all did the same thing, it wouldn't work. My right. cousin, my cousin um, he pays all the bills. He sleeps with the checkbook. <laughs> <laughs> you know, in 23 years, I think I signed five checks. Mm-hmm. Also, so the, the 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 it goes back to Joe's conversation about um, friendships only start if the value systems align, right? That is correct. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And my sister's in Greece right now, so. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, uh, uh, that's our uh, list of questions that we had for you, Jaffer. Is there anything uh, left that you wish to touch upon that we didn't get to? Um, I will say the one thing that. Uh, I probably should have said that I did not. Mm. And that is that the more you look in the rear view mirror going forward, mm. okay, the more at risk you are. Now, th- this may sound like it is a violation of Lindy. So imagine you driving on a winding road, mm. just looking in the rear view mirror. You're going to crash. Right. So if we understand that the future doesn't resemble the past, Mm. the past is not a great predictor of the future. And so whenever you get this overwhelming urge to use historical data, Mm. be extremely uh, circumspect with it. You know, be careful because, you know, it's not going to be the same going forward. Right, right, right. Oh, that's an excellent point. All right, and one last question. Uh, what are some books you would recommend to our viewers? Books? Yeah. Okay. Um, I, um, I'm, read- I'm reading two right now. One is called The Deniable Darwin, written mm. by David Berlinski. Um, and um, he's a mathematician who is critiquing the current state of Darwinian thought. He's not a creationist, okay? Uh, but what he does is say, what's wrong with the evolution theory as it exists today? So, and that that kind of jives with my philosophy of, of critique. Um, the other book I'm reading right now, I just got it in, is Nomi Prin's Collusion, How Central Banks Rigged the System. Mm. Rigged the world, rather. Um, mm-hmm. Nomi Prince is uh, um, she's a very uh, brilliant woman who was on the inside and uh, she um, worked for Lehman Brothers, but then she was there during the financial crisis of 2007, 8, and 9, and she knows the central banking system all over the world. It's a r- tremendous book. You know, I, I most of what I read are 
critiques of something or other. <laughs> Via negativa, right? That's correct. All right. Well, thank you so much, Jaffer, for joining us on this episode of Risky Conversations. We All thoroughly right. enjoyed it. We hope you did as well. All right. It's been it's actually been an honor, and both of you are extremely good at what you do. Believe me. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thanks a lot. All right. Well, well. Until next time. Thank you very much uh, to our listeners, and um, we will put Jaffer's uh, uh, social media links on the uh, podcast notes, as well as the books you just recommended. Thanks. Thanks again. Have a great day. Take care. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode as much as we have. The truth is, any worthy conversation you'll ever have will inherently be a risky conversation, as long as it's open and honest where ideas are exchanged and emotions swirl. Thank you for listening, be anti-fragile, and carry on the ancient tradition in your own unique way, by saying what only you can say and doing what only you can do. Abiding by Milton's words, this is Emerson Sadat signing off, wishing you the very best of worthy and risky conversations. <laughs>